0: Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Joshua 21, 45 lets us know that our God does what he said he would do. Happy 14th birthday, Grace Church. This past Sunday, February 14th, not only represented Valentine's Day, but also represented Grace Church's 14th birthday It was then that the risen Christ gave expression to the assembly of believers known as Grace Church Memphis, February the 17th, 2007. Eighteen souls covenanted together beneath the gospel of Jesus Christ as one body of believers. Since then, we have had the incalculable joy of seeing the Lord add to our faith family. Many who have transitioned to other places and congregations, but through the years, the Lord has so blessed us as a congregation. And on our 14th birthday, had we met in person, we had scheduled to take a break from our Believe and Live series in the Gospel of John to devote our attention to Psalm 105. And through this recording, I aim to preach to you a... Uh, an abbreviated version of what we would have gotten on Sunday. The reason we turn to Psalm 105 is because it instructs us by the Holy Spirit how we are to embrace history as a catalyst for God-glorifying praise. I've been reflecting on our 14 years of history as a congregation Over the past weeks leading up to our birthday, and I was overjoyed as I thought of so many expressions of God's supernatural intervention among us. We have had peaks and valleys, we have had joys and sorrows, and through them all, the Lord has been faithful. Perhaps you can think of stories over the past 14 years or however long the Lord has had you as part of this congregation and you can think of stories of God's grace. And I want to encourage you to use the comment thread on our realm application to share summaries of ways you have seen God at work in your lives or the lives of others over the course of our church's history. Let me prime your pump. No less than 400 times, easily 40 times a year, for a decade, equaling 400, and that's a conservative estimate. Easily 400 times, one of our sweet sisters, Laura Donovan, prayed publicly in our Sunday prayer gatherings for the salvation of her dear husband, Mitch, and the congregation cried aloud with her and trusted God with her. Many uh, were involved in loving and pointing Mitch to Christ and through a series of terribly deep heartbreak, the hardest and deepest heartbreak uh, that can be experienced on this side of eternity through the death of their precious daughter and uh, the valley of the shadow of death through which they walked. Amber Mathenia passed away in an auto accident. For those who don't know, Laura's daughter, Mitch's daughter, April's sister, who was a missionary to Ethiopia. Uh, She passed away in an auto accident just north of Millington. And uh, through that valley of sorrow and hardship, uh, this congregation became a minister of the grace of Christ, a balm of Christ's tender ointment to that hurting, grieving family. Amber was so close to so many of the ladies in our church. If I started to name them, I would inadvertently miss some, but many of the ladies in our church were dear friends of Amber's, and and our church felt that wound very, very deeply of a precious uh, sister in the Lord who, who we lost in what appeared to be an untimely death. But Laura continued to pray, and As you all know, one of the great stories of God's grace over the past 14 years is the new birth experienced by Mitch Donovan and how the Lord rescued this man and the precious conversations that he and I have shared and so many others have shared with him of this newborn babe in Christ, like a kid in a candy store, learning the wonders of the Lord Jesus and the riches of the word. His new birth has been truly a blessing. I I remember... Dan Reisman's conversion who uh, attending our worship services and through the counsel of the pastors not partaking of the Lord's Supper because of the conversations we were having with him about the gospel about his spiritual condition and one Sunday as the Lord would have it Pastor Brian was giving a brief meditation before the congregation partook of the Lord's Supper and Dan yet again was sitting in his chair while everybody partook and as he sat there during the participation of the supper by the rest of the church family, Dan was born again. And through these years, we have seen God anoint this man's walk with Jesus, his life with Christ, and the way he has sought to point so many others to the Lord Jesus and use his life, leverage his life for the cause of Christ in this community and beyond. I think of sweet sister Irma Bobo's new birth. And oh, I could tell so many stories, but those early conversations that I was privileged to have with Irma before she was a Christian and had a very religious background, but was void of an understanding of, of the true gospel. And, and we talked and prayed and so many others ministered uh, to Irma and pointed her to Christ. And she became, following her Real relationship with Jesus. She became one of the most joyful in the Lord Christ followers I've ever met. She would, uh, you were incapable of being around Irma without hearing of her boasting in the Lord, as our psalm uh, that we'll look at today commands us to do. We could tell so many stories, and not just stories of conversion, but also. God's grace to us in sorrow and hardship and valleys of challenge. And I want to encourage you to reflect on God's kindnesses to us as a congregation, to you individually, uh, even ways he's ministered to you through this church family and use the Realm Thread to remind the church of ways we have seen God's faithfulness. Well, with that in mind, Psalm 105 looks back much further than a 14 year history. It really covers about 500 years of redemptive history. It's one of those Psalms that record the history of Israel. And before I just read it, I think it would serve us better in this version uh, of this sermon to take the passage in portions as it is presented to us. Uh, We'll take the biggest part Psalm 105, verse 7 through 45, first, that's the cause for praise, the reason for praise, the, the ground upon which you should stand and from which you should glorify the Lord. Or as verse 3 says, glory in the Lord. And then not only is there a cause for praise, verses seven to 45, there is a call to praise in verses one to six. We'll conclude with the call to praise and we'll start with the motivation, the cause for praise. And there are two reasons in the cause for praise that we find in Psalm 105, verses seven through 11, we find a portrait of our promise making God. God makes extraordinary promises to his people, his covenant to his people that he fully intends to fulfill, and we should trust his every word. And then, not only our promise making God, verses 7 through 11, but our promise keeping God, verses 12 through 45. This psalm takes us through a series of kept promises that our God has made to his people. It begins in Genesis 12, reflecting on God's promise to Abraham, and it ends in the book of Joshua with God's fulfillment of his promise to provide the land of Canaan for his people. It goes through four portions of the Old Testament. It goes through Genesis uh, 12 and following, God's promises kept to the patriarchs, verses 16 to 24, God's promises kept during the life and time of Joseph, which was a very challenging season, but yet uh, God was faithful. Third, God's kept promises during the life and times of of Moses, including Israel's history of enslavement in Egypt and all those centuries of very difficult uh, experiences, yet our God remained faithful. So, God's faithfulness to his promises to the patriarchs, to Joseph, to Israel, even during the life and time of Moses, and then finally the conquest of Canaan verses 44 to 45. Those are the four parts of this psalm sharing with us how God had kept his promises to his people. So with that in mind, let us think about Our promise-making, promise-keeping God. In this psalm, we have both an invitation from our God to praise him, verses 1 to 6, and a summation of roughly 500 years of God's unfailing faithfulness to his promises and to his people as the enumerated reasons for which it is fitting that God's people render our praise to him, not only privately, but among the nations, make known what he has done, the psalm says. Psalm 105 fits in the middle of three consecutive psalms that each relate to each other. Psalm 104 shows us God's sovereignty and his control over nature. How he uses everything in nature for his glorious purposes. Psalm 105 5 which is our portion, speaks to us of God's sovereign control in and over history, how his covenant faithfulness to his people in every season and in every experience is always unfailing, seen especially as I've tried to briefly lay out through the life and times of Abraham, Moses, Joseph, and entering the promised land. And then third, Psalm 106 lays out a dark cloth. Though God is in control of nature 104, of history 105, Israel was yet again unfaithful in her later years, unfaithful to her Lord in her history, even after God had continued to prove His faithfulness to them. They became idolaters in the land of Canaan. They embraced syncretism and amalgamated uh, so they thought the one true God into the religions of the pagans in the land. Psalm so one of5, our portion has three parts. Call to praise in the beginning. Reasons to praise Him, 7 to 45, and then it ends with a command to praise Him yet again. In the middle, we see the why question answered, the ground. Why are we, if we were to ask the psalmist, why are we to live a life of Godward praise? The command is clear, praise, praise, praise. In fact, there are 10 commands, 10 imperatives in the first five verses of which Jehovah, Yahweh, is unanimously the object. Give thanks, number one, to the Lord. Call upon his name, number two. Sing to him, number three. Sing praise to him. Speak of his wonders, glory in his holy name. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders, his marvels, and his judgments. That's Ten imperatives in the first five verses. So the command is clear. But I want to begin with the reason for which the command is given. In this psalm, the cause that is enumerated for rendering praise unto the Lord is found in verses 7 through 45. The psalmist wants us to remember God's faithfulness in times past, as a motivation to praise him in the present. James Lindbergh said it is possible for a people, even a congregation to have amnesia and forget who they are and why they exist. Psalm 105 suggests not just a committee of a few, but a commitment of a whole people to keeping alive the story of God's mighty acts in their past through the telling of stories and through the singing of songs. Dear friends, I want to encourage you to tell your children stories of God's faithfulness in biblical history, in church history, and even in your own life and in our congregation. Let the next generation know the mighty deeds of our God. That's what Psalm 105 is about. And the reason is so that we will praise him. So verses 7 to 45 recalls God's faithfulness to Israel in times past. And in that respect, it is similar to four other psalms. There are a total of five psalms out of the 150 that do the work of telling Israel's history. Psalm 78, Psalm 106, Psalm 135, Psalm 136, and ours today, Psalm 105. Other places in scripture do the same thing for the same reason. Narrate God's faithfulness so that we will praise him. Nehemiah 9 is another Old Testament example. Acts chapter seven is a New Testament example. So first let's look at verses seven through 11, our promise making God. Verse seven, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. Well, before we dive into this point, let's ask for God's blessing. Oh, Father, I pray for the precious people who will somehow stumble upon my voice in this recording. And oh, how I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see and to perceive your mighty acts in history in fulfillment of your majestic promises to your people to provide for us what you require of us so that we may praise you and glorify you. Oh God, cause us to look back, particularly upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and not to serve from a debtor's ethic trying to pay you back for how good you've been, but to receive steadily from the flow of your mighty grace, which Christ has purpose, purchased so that we may live a life of truly God-glorifying, Spirit-dependent, blood-bought praise unto you, our faithful covenant-making, covenant-keeping, king of the universe. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Although the psalm we're considering covers over half a millennium of time, more than 500 years, throughout which God fulfilled his promises, which are contained in that portion I read, verses 7 to 11, we are to learn from this text that all-important lesson of faith that is bound up in the totality of Scripture, namely, God is faithful. The New Testament would say it simply and clearly even if we are faithless, God remains faithful, Paul wrote to Timothy, because he cannot deny himself. When God makes a promise, it is as good as done. We are to trust him. And there are reasons we should trust him, not only because he has a great track record of faithfulness, that's certainly a reason, and that's the main one given in Psalm 105. But beneath that his track record of faithfulness, we are to look into his character. When God makes a promise that he will not cast out any who come to him by Christ, we are to trust him, not only because we've seen him do it in the lives of a bunch of other people, but because deeper, his character is trustworthy. Hebrews 6 says, It is impossible for God to lie. Titus chapter 1 says, we have the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long, long ago. So first, we're to trust him because he is trustworthy. He is reliable. He is solid. His character is sure. And he always speaks consistently with his nature. So if he says he will do it, it is as good as done. Not only is he trustworthy, he's also unchanging. James says there's no shadow of shifting with God. The light doesn't move. His shadow doesn't shift around because he himself is light. Beaming from his character is immutability. As Malachi says, the Lord speaking, I am the Lord. I do not change. So he's trustworthy. He never changes. But he also is to be trusted because he has the ability. He has all power. If he makes a promise, we don't have to wonder if he is capable of accomplishing it. In fact, in the book of Romans, Paul writes, what God has promised, Abraham understood, quote, Romans 4.21, he was also able to do. When God makes a promise, he's perfectly capable of fulfilling it because he's omnipotent. And finally, his promises do flow from his own glorious and excellent character. We hear that in Second Peter 1. His divine power has bestowed on us all things that are necessary for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, through which he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So we know that God will never break a promise because his oaths to mankind are soaked in the blood of his son. The New Testament summarizes the ground reason for which we should always trust God to fulfill every promise he's ever made. And that's found in 2 Corinthians 1 20, for as many as are the promises of God, they are yes in Jesus. Jesus has signed the document of all of God's oaths, all of God's covenants, all of God's promises. In his own righteous blood, his promises are as good as done. So in verses 7-11 through of Psalm 105, when we read, for example, in verse 8, he has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. We need to understand that not only do we need to remember God's promises, we need to remember that God remembers God's promises. He never forgets them and will never fail. So in verses 7 through 11, we see a highlight shining on our promise-making God. Specifically in view is God's covenant with Abraham, which we found, found in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. God's covenant with Isaac, Genesis 26. And God's covenant with Jacob, whose name he changed to Israel, Genesis 28 and Genesis 46. The remainder of Psalm 105 speaks of God keeping the promises that he made to our fathers in the faith. Verses 12 to 45 speak of our promise keeping God. So once again, this is a historic psalm. It narrates Israel's history to accentuate God's faithfulness. And as such, this psalm covers, I mentioned about 500 Plus years of Israel's history. So if you wanted a faithful summary of Genesis 12 through the book of Joshua, you should master Psalm 105. It doesn't replace all those books of the Bible, but it does summarize the heart of the message of those books of the Bible. So if you knew Psalm 105, you would have a very solid understanding of Genesis through Joshua. The selections in verses 12 to 45 of God's faithfulness to Israel that are accented in this psalm provide a basic summary of Genesis through Joshua. If you know this psalm, you'll know the heart of the message of those books of the Bible. There are several other psalms, as I mentioned, that function in the same way. You could look at Psalm 78, 106, 135, or 136. It is a tremendous help to us to be able to see, like we see in this psalm, huge swaths of God's revelation to us in very small bite-sized pieces. This psalm functions that way. Also, as we read the account of 1 Chronicles 16, we learn that not only is this psalm, 105, a summation of the history of Israel, it was also used by King David when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought into Jerusalem and installed in the temple. We find that King David used this psalm in order to help God's people praise God for that momentous occasion that represented so much about the glory and gospel of our Lord Jesus, the Ark coming into the temple. And David does that in 1 Chronicles 16. Well, what promises did God keep that the psalmist highlights in Psalm 105? I mentioned there are four categories. Verses 12 to 15, he kept his promises to the patriarchs. Verses 16 to 24, his, he kept his promises during the life and time of Joseph. Verses 25 to 43, during the history of Israel in Egypt and during the life and times of Moses. And then finally, verses 44 and 45, in the conquest of Canaan. Let me allow the scripture to preach itself as I just read to you those sections. First, God's covenant faithfulness to the patriarchs, verses 12 to 15. When they were only a few men in number, very few, and strangers in it in the land. Now this is referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 13, they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, And God permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. What we see in those verses is that when God called Abram, who was a Gentile pagan worshipping a pagan deity, in a foreign land and God snatched him up like a brand from the fire and plucked him for his own glory and made to him magnificent promises in Genesis 12:15 and 17 and to his sons Isaac and Jacob what we find in verses 12 to 15 is that God was sovereignly controlling the affairs of nations to make sure that nobody subverted his promise to his chosen people We find in verse 14, God reproved kings for their sake. Remember when Abraham won the battle of the kings and he gives a tithe to Melchizedek, this king of righteousness and king of shalom, king of peace. Well, God saw to it that those kings didn't defeat Abram and his people. And verse 15 happened. No one touched God's anointed ones. Even though, as Hebrews says, they lived in tents, moving about in the land of promise, they dwelled in tents, they didn't even have a home because they were looking for that city which is to come, and they were trusting their faithful God to do what only he could do. We find that even in that perilous condition, wandering about in tents, moving through nations that could have easily, humanly speaking, crushed them, God preserved them because he's faithful to his promises. But not only his covenant, faithfulness to the patriarchs, verses 12 to 15. Second, his covenant faithfulness in the life and ministry in times of Joseph. Listen to verses 16 through 24. And God called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of the peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries. You remember the story of God's covenant faithfulness to Joseph? The refrain of the story of Joseph found in the latter 12 to 15 chapters of the book of Genesis has a chorus that is repeated in it. And the Lord was with him. Whether he was in the pit, or whether he was in Potiphar's house, or whether he was in prison, or whether he was exalted to the second highest place in the palace, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. This young man, though, probably an Uh, older teenager in his young 20s at the time of his enslavement and betrayal by his brothers whose father thought that he had been killed by a wild animal as the brothers framed the story to twist their father Jacob's mind to believe a lie. Joseph, that young man, sold into slavery, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of Indiscretion, impropriety, imprisoned. Many historians would do the math and suggest for as many as 13 years for a crime he never committed. And then eventually, through the interpretation of the pharaoh's dream, exalted to vice-regent of Egypt. And then we find out. We get to see what Joseph could not see during all those years of hardship. It takes us but a few moments to read over those chapters of Genesis, and we find out very quickly what it took Joseph probably 13, 15, 18 years to discern that the whole while, even before he was thrown into a pit and sold into slavery, the whole while, all those dark years in the dungeon of that prison, all the while, God was faithfully keeping his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to preserve literally Jacob and his family alive. God raised Joseph to the vice presidency, if you will, of Egypt so that Israel would be spared during those years of famine, which Psalm 105 tells us something that Genesis doesn't. God is the one who sent the famine God sovereignly controlled not only the plight of Joseph, including the hard, hard experiences through which he walked, but God also sovereignly controlled the food supply of the nations and saw to it that there wasn't enough food for Jacob. For his people because God had a bigger plan to move them to a place and cause them to increase in number so that eventually God could show his mighty power as Romans says God raised up Pharaoh to demonstrate his own power in overcoming the reputedly so-called most powerful man on earth and throwing him to the bottom of the Red Sea to his death God was faithful in the life and times of Joseph. So not only in verses 12 to 15, God's covenant faithfulness to the patriarchs as they wandered about, homeless, yet God saw to it that they were preserved miraculously. Not only God's covenant faithfulness in the life and times of Joseph, verses 16 to 24, during that most difficult life experience that we read about in the Old Testament, such a portrait of the Lord Jesus. But third, God's covenant faithfulness In the history of Israel, when they were enslaved in Egypt, culminating in the life and times and ministry of Moses. This is verses 25 to 43. It's worth listening to carefully. Hear God's word. Psalm 105, beginning in verse 25, accenting God's covenant faithfulness in the history of Israel, in their enslavement in Egypt, and in the life and ministry of Moses. Verse 25. God turned their heart, that is, Egypt's, to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed his wondrous acts among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He, that is, God, sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there was a swarm of flies and gnats in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck down their vines also in their fig trees and shattered the trees of their territory. He spoke, and locusts came, and young locusts, even without number, and ate up all vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He also struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their vigor. Then he, that is the Lord, brought them out with silver and gold, and among his tribes there was not one who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them had fallen upon Egypt. He spread a cloud for a covenant covering and fire to illumine by night. They asked, and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and water flowed out. It ran in the dry places like a river for he remembered his holy word with Abraham, his servant, and he brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. Oh, dear Grace Church, do you hear God remembering his word? Verse 42, his holy word, which he had spoken with Abraham some 500 plus years before Moses was born. God made a promise to Abraham. And during Moses' life, when Israel had been enslaved for 430 years and they could not see any way out, life was continuing to get harder, not better. More bricks, less straw. More oppression, less freedom. Even during that time, all those centuries, we can't hardly conceive of 400 years. Four centuries of difficult, brutal enslavement. Verse 42. During that time, God remembered his holy word with Abraham his servant. Do you see our faithful God even in the midst of atrocious hardship that befell his people? What the psalmist does in verses 25 to 43 is summarize the fact that the plagues struck Israel. He he actually reorders them. Instead of beginning with the first plague and marching sequentially through them, he, uh, he, he, he shuffles them up. And his point is not to enumerate the plagues in order and to give just a history lesson, but to jog your mind to God intervening in human history in order to prove his faithfulness to his covenant promises to his people and for his glory. God did this and God did that and God did this. And every time he touches another symbol with his drumstick, referring to those plagues, your minds are to run into a thousand tributaries of what the Old Testament teaches us in those particular moments of God's intervention of his power in human history against the allegedly most powerful nation on earth. But we find that when God finally brought them out, we see that he caused verse 36. All the firstborn in their land to be struck down, the first fruits of all their vigor, the Passover night, when Genesis—pardon um, me, Exodus—tells us there was a cry in midnight. Could you imagine the wail of those mother, uh, childless mothers, when they awoke in the night to check on their babies, and not one house remained in Egypt without death within it. And not one house of any of the Israelites suffered even one death. Verse 37 says, among his tribes, there was not one who stumbled. Do you hear it? Of all those million plus people under such atrocious servitude and hardship and living in conditions that we would find almost unlivable, God preserved his people because he's all powerful and because he is faithful and because when he says he's going to do something, it is as good as done. When they left and they crossed through the Red Sea and all of them were preserved alive, but when Egypt followed, they were all crushed by those mighty waters under God's judgment. And then God brought Israel not only safely through the sea, but he sustained them in their wilderness wanderings. He gave them cloud to shade them in the day and fire to light their way at night. His presence was with them. He gave them food to eat, quail, and bread from heaven. He gave them water to drink, in verse 41, that flowed from a rock. And the New Testament tells us in no uncertain terms the rock was Christ, the real supply of their deepest thirst, was not some inanimate object in the middle of the wilderness, some rock from which water flowed, but it was the rock of ages, Christ himself, who was torn so that life could flow out of him into them. He was their water. He was their rock. And all of this, verse 42, because God remembered his holy word with Abraham, his servant. God's faithfulness we see in the third part of this psalm recounting Israel's history, God's faithfulness during Israel's time in Egypt and in the life and ministry of Moses. And then the history of the psalm concludes, verse 44 in the beginning of 45, with God's covenant faithfulness in giving the land of Canaan to his people. Verse 44 reads, God gave them also the lands of the nations that they might take possession of the fruit of the people's labor so that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. When God promised way back in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 to Abram from Ur of the Chaldees that he would give him a people, offspring and descendants as numerable as the stars in the heavens and sands on the seashore, and give him a land. So that the people of God could dwell in safety, typifying that eternal Beulah land, that city which God is building, which no human hand could ever erect. This psalm concludes five hundred years after that Genesis twelve, fifteen, and seventeen promise to one little man, Abram, and it concludes, He gave them also the lands of the nations. This is the psalmist crash of the cymbal. This is his deepest kick of the mallet on the bass drum. He said he would do it, verses 7 through 11. And he did it, verse 44. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come, and God has led us safe thus far and God will lead us home. These are the reasons, these four epics of Israel's history, the patriarchs, Joseph, the time of Israel in Egypt, and the ministry of Moses, and the provision of the promised land, which verse 44 says, Israel took took possession of, though it was the fruit of other people's labor. They didn't even have to work for it. What a picture of redemption when God brings us through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and eventually across the Jordan, and we enter into a land that we couldn't have built even if we wanted to. God did it all for us. The Lord Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, and through his cross work, we get to enter into that land. And one glorious day will be with him forever and we will enjoy the fruit of another's labor, not our own. The work of the Lord Jesus, the gospel labors of our king to do for us what we never could have done for ourselves. To pay a debt that we owed that we could not pay, Jesus has done in our stead. Well, the psalmist takes those four portions of Israel's history and says, This is the cause for which you should praise God. With that in mind... We'll conclude with the call to praise in verses 1 to 6. The cause for praise is verse 7 to 45. The call to praise is verses 1 to 6. As I mentioned, there are 10 imperatives in the first five verses of which Jehovah, Yahweh, is unanimously the object. Praise Him, glory in Him. He is the object of all the imperatives. None of them are suggestions. They are all commands. All commands. Whereas he's the subject, the one who does the action, in verses 7 to 45, he is the object, the one who receives the action, in verses 1 to 6. Having seen nearly 40 verses where God is the subject of the verbs, doing all the work, 7 to 45, the Lord is the object of the verbs, receiving the action, in verses 1 to 6. So who is performing the imperatives? Who is obeying the commands in verses one to five? The answer is verse six. O seed of Abraham, his servant. O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. This is the elect. This is the redeemed. This is the tithe of humanity, which God has saved all by himself and all for himself. The seed of Abraham, Galatians 3 tells us, if you are of the faith of Abraham, Then you are his offspring. It's not a biological line. It's not a genealogical line. You can't trace it through DNA study, and you can't mail off a kit of a sample to find out if you're part of this family tree. The only way to belong to Abraham's seed is to be one who exercises his faith, the same faith in the same Savior, and all trusting in the Almighty, the faithful God who keeps all the promises he's made. So having laid down the reasons why praise unto the Lord is fitting for God's people in light of his covenant faithfulness to his people in every generation, the psalmist wants us to respond in a particular way, namely in God-centered praise. Let me take five different expressions from verses one through five of how we are to respond to God's faithfulness in history. Number one, verse one, we are to do two things. Give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. This is a command to thankfulness and to dependence. Give thanks to the Lord. It's often been said and said, well, we worship our way into sin and you must worship your way out of it. Sin is fundamentally a delighting in something or someone that ultimately will not satisfy whom or what we have made an idol. We have tried to find ultimate satisfaction in something or someone other than God. That is the definition of idolatry, that is false worship. You worship your way into sin and the only way out is to worship your way out. Give thanks to the Lord, praise him. Thank him. Tell him how thankful you are for who he is and for what he's done. And second, in this first verse, not only thankfulness, but also dependence. Call upon his name. Help. Call out. Cry out. God, are you there? I need you. Call upon his name. And calling upon his name is calling upon his character. Not only are you there, I know that your name is, and you fill in the blank. You are Jehovah Jireh, the provider. Jehovah Rapha, the healer. Jehovah who you are my righteousness. Jehovah Nisi, you're my banner. El Roi, the God who sees. El Elyon, God most high. You are the I am. You are Yahweh. You are the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. You are faithful. Call upon his name. That's thankfulness and dependence. When you see his mighty acts in redemptive history, faithfully fulfilling all his promises over 500 years of redemptive history and not one, as Joshua says, not one of his good promises to his people failed, not one. We are to respond first with thankfulness and dependence, but second, we are to respond and catch this carefully with evangelistic worship. Verse two, sing to him. Sing praise to him. Speak of all of his wonders. Do you hear it? Sing, sing, speak. These are commands. Daniel Estes points out in the New American Commentary volume, Here the people's reflection on the Lord's deeds overflows into speech as they publicly extol him. This isn't only private worship. It's not only congregational worship. It's evangelistic worship worship, speak of all his wonders. We are to speak to one another in our song, in Ephesians 5, in our psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with our hearts to the Lord. So the way we sing to the Lord is also the way we speak to the people. Our songs of praise should be filled with enumerations of God's faithfulness to himself and to his people we should tell the truth in the songs that we sing about our God we should tell the truth to all who are in within earshot as we sing his praise and we should also be speaking of his wonders Ephesians 5 19 making melody in our heart to the Lord is the same way we speak to one another in psalms hymns In spiritual songs. This is evangelistic worship. Oh, may all around us know. Through the songs that we sing. That our God is faithful to his promises. And they can get in on the good news too. Oh, let us be evangelistically worshiping. In fact, those who truly worship God. Know that he is worthy of the worship of everyone else as well. And as we praise him. We long for more to praise him, sing to him, sing praise to him, and speak of all of his wonders. Tell somebody how good God is. Speak of all of his wonders. The third command, uh, verse one is thankfulness and dependence. Verse two is evangelistic worship. Verse three is boasting rejoicing verse 3 reads glory in his holy name the hebrew word for this translated glory in the new american standard is literally to boast boast in his holy name it's deeper than thanking him for his benefits thank you god for all you've done for me it's deeper than that it is a rejoicing in a boi- a boasting in who he is it's a praise and a delightedness a rejoicing and a boasting in his holy name. The beams that come from the sun are like the benefits God gives us in our redemption. But we are to trace every sunbeam back up to its source. We are to go through the benefits like a beam from the sun. We are to trace it back up to its source, to the heart of our great God. We should say thank you for all he's done for us. But that doing for us should lead us back up to the source of the doing. And we should praise God essentially for who he is, not only for what he has done. Boast in his holy name. Glory in his holy name. That's the only appropriate response to seeing God's faithfulness to all of his promises. And then fourth, pursuing him, tracking him down, stalking God, going hard for God, being on a quest to find the face of God. Listen to verse 4. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. One of the commentaries I read on this verse was so helpful, and it read, The people of God are called to keep their attention on him rather than diverting their gaze to lesser objects. Seeking the Lord requires the whole heart, verse 3, all the time, verse 4. Did you catch it in verse 4? Seek the Lord in his strength seek his face continually as the commentary said all the time don't ever divorce god always remain covenantly covenantly faithful to your king who is always in faithful covenant with you The one who will never leave or ever forsake you. The one who delights for you to see his glory more than you long to see his glory. The one who has taken great pains in order to glorify himself in saving you. Seek him, seek his strength, seek his face continually. Where do we see his face? The Gospel writers tell us no man has seen God at any time. Paul writes to Timothy, no one has seen him or can see him. We're told that he dwells in unapproachable light. Even the priests could not see other than a reflection of the resplendent glory of God in the Holy of Holies. Where do we see his face? The answer is in Second Corinthians 4, among other places. The glory of of God is found in the face of Christ. Seek his face continually. The Lord Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the face of God, if you will. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. He is the one who radiates the glory of God and exactly represents the nature of God. According to Hebrews, seek his face continually. Find God continually. In his son. Grace Church, we need this verse in our day when there are a billion distractions from Christ. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face continually. And then finally, reflect. Verse 5 There's a way to praise God by looking back on the massive reservoir of his grace that has already poured into our lives and into the lives of our fathers and brothers and sisters in the faith. Remember his wonders, his marvels, and his judgments. Verse 5. God's people are so prone to spiritual amnesia, we so quickly forget. That's why we have to worship together every Lord's Day, every Sunday, to have, as Luther said, the gospel beat into our head continually, to be reminded regularly what we are so quick to forget. In this psalm, we see that our God has ripped open the Red Sea, that he has faithfully saved his people from servitude in Egypt. We see that he kept the patriarchs and caused kings to shut their mouths so that his people could be preserved as they wandered through foreign lands. We see that when Joseph was in a prison, God was with him and God was keeping his promises and preserving many people alive even through the difficult days of that forefather in the faith. God's people stepped across the dry bed of the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, that promised land, and they inherited cities that they didn't build and produce that they didn't labor for, a land flowing with milk and honey, grapes so big that grown men had a hard time carrying them on clusters between poles on their shoulders. God is faithful. But friends, we have a better vantage point. We can stand on a higher mountain. We can climb all the way up on that hill outside of Jerusalem, and we can see... That Christ's death has ripped the veil of the temple in two from top to bottom so that we may enter God's presence. Israel crossed dry ground when the Red Sea was ripped in half and they praised God. You can go read it for yourself in the book of Exodus and the Song of Moses. But now the veil of the temple has been ripped in two and we can barge right into the presence chamber of the Almighty. Remember, Grace Church, our God sovereignly rules over nature, Psalm 104. He sovereignly rules over all of history, Psalm 105, keeping his covenant promises. He guides the affairs of all peoples, Abraham and all kings. We see Pharaoh to accomplish his purposes, even when we can't see his hand at work in our life. Think of Joseph or centuries-long slavery. Think of Israel and Egypt. God is always, always at work to fulfill His promises. And because we can look back on the cross of Christ and His resurrection from the dead, we have even more historical artillery to look back upon to see that God is faithful and therefore to praise Him. If He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Christ freely give us all things. Indeed, all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus. So let us do the very last phrase of Psalm 105. Praise the Lord. In Hebrew, it's one word. It's plural and it's an imperative. It's literally the word hallelujah, which shows up in the Psalms for the very first time. At the end of the last chapter, Psalm 104, 103 chapters, it doesn't occur. But in 104, when we see God's sovereignty over history, praise the Lord. Here in 105, praise the Lord. And it closes out Psalm 106, again, hallelujah, praise the Lord. This ends book four of the Psalms. Praise him, praise him, praise him. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And again, the word is imperative. It is a command and it is plural, Do it together. Covenant yourself with this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and covenant with his people to obey this word. Hallelujah. Praise him together. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. Oh, Father, I ask that you would cause this word to be a blessing to any who stumble upon it and especially... That you would cause it to be a blessing to the end that we remember your mighty deeds and say what joshua said in chapter 21 verse 45 we're going to praise you because not one of the good promises which the lord had made to the house of israel failed all came to pass Oh, let us look through the lens of the risen Jesus to see that not only have you kept all your promises, but because he is risen and reigning and soon returning, we therefore fix our hope completely on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You will fulfill all your promises. Thank you for being faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.